20. This is what the Word of God says to us today. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of your courts, of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon, festivals, and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me, and I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are like red, like they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the swords. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's pray one more time together. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, and we're grateful for the Lord Jesus that makes all things possible for us. We thank you that on the basis of his work, his merit, his righteousness, his life, his death, his resurrection, we have the grace now to appear before so holy a God. And Lord, remind us today that you are the Holy One of Israel. Remind us today that the praises with which you are most glorified are the praises that issue from a true heart. And so, Father, we pray in the spirit of this text, would you renew us, revive us, continually cleanse us, and help us, Lord, to stand before you in the righteousness of your Son. Lord, we pray that you would help us now, help us to discern your word and aid us as we look at your holy law. May it instruct us and may you open up wondrous things to us. We pray all these wonderful things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as you can tell from this passage in Isaiah, we are looking at quite an extensive text of Scripture in what can only be called the death and resurrection of worship. That's the title of my sermon today. The death and resurrection of worship. Now, when we talk about the death of worship, we're obviously on the heels of a passage that we just dealt with in this book where we saw what gave rise to the death of worship in Israel. And what we found is that what gave rise to the death of worship in Israel was sin and apostasy. Ultimately, it was amounting to covenant breaking before 
God. But I want to kind of raises a more practical question for us today, and that is in terms of what worship is. I think you and I have come to a place now in the Christian church, in the evangelical scene. We are inundated with worship, are we not? I mean, just take a look at my iTunes. You'll see I got worship everywhere. I got probably hundreds of albums of worship. Good worship, too. I, I promise you, it's good stuff. And in there, I have a variety of worship. I have hymns of the faith. I have uh, contemporary stuff. If you look back far enough into my iTunes, you could even find stuff like Christian punk rock and other stuff. Anyway, don't, don't judge me. I was once on, I think it was Todd Friel's podcast or somebody has, what's the craziest thing on your iTunes? Oh, man, I blushed. And I said... <laughs> Something like Christian punk or something like that. I got rap too. I like Christian rap. But it just kind of illustrates to us that what God is concerned with more than anything is not the form or the function that's involved. Uh, You could be uh, doing contemporary. You could be doing traditional. You could be exclusive psalmody. Those are folks in the church that say that the only thing we should be singing in the church is psalms. And uh, usually no instruments whatsoever. You know, because instruments are evil, of course. So we have, as a result, worship wars. And uh, worship wars are very, very dangerous for a church. Churches split over worship wars in the church. Can you believe that? People, there's, I want hymns. Other people say, no, I want electric guitars. And off they go into their own little corners. And what happens is, is you, know, you know what happens is just division and all this stuff. And it just should baffle all of us here to say, is that what God really cares about? Whether you're worshiping with a guitar or with a a hymnal in your hand. What God really cares about is our hearts. And this, uh, this passage right here illustrates that more than anything. And so again, when we're asking about the purity of worship, authentic worship, true worship, we're asking the question, why does worship die? It dies because there is sin and apostasy at work. And when the heart of God's people has strayed away from God, when they are weighed down with iniquity and ultimately compromised, leading to a complete and total uh, undoing of their faith, because what was at work in Israel is nothing less than what we can call syncretism. In other words, it was a combining of pagan practice with the worship of the true and living God, and it got to the point that the worship of the true God and the worship of the pagan God was indistinguishable to them. Matter of fact, if you look at a parallel a prophet, i.e. Isaiah, the prophet Hosea, if you look at Hosea chapter 2, there came a point in time where the prophet even told the people, stop calling me Baal, because the people were so syncretized in their worship. They had so compromised the purity of Israel's worship that they had introduced all of these practices of Baal worship. And that's exactly why worship died in Israel. It's really bleak in Israel at this time. Remember, you got Israel to the north, Judah to the south. It's going to get to the point where Israel to the north is so apostate that God says, I'm through with you. No grace. Uh, you don't get another chance. And, and if it wasn't for the grace of God, Judah would have went in the same way. But we have an oracle of grace in Hosea chapter 1, verse 7, where God even says, uh, Israel is through. 
Judah, I'm going to be gracious to her. I'm going to be gracious to Judah. I'm going to be gracious to Jerusalem. I'm actually going to save a remnant out of it. And that's the only reason you and I are still talking about the theology of Isaiah right now. Were it not for sovereign grace, Judah would have went right in the same path as Israel and there'd be no kingdom. And we, t- we talked about that last week. What's the point of that? Is that it arises to the, to the level of an antichrist crisis. Because if you don't have Israel, you don't have Judah, you don't have the promises, you don't have the fathers, you don't have the oracles, you don't have the covenants, you have nothing. And so if you don't get past chapter 1 of Isaiah, you don't get to chapter 7. Chapter 7 is the chapter on Emmanuel. A child will be given, a son will be born. Emmanuel, God with us. You don't get to God with us if you don't get past this apostasy. So what is God going to do? That's the whole point of the passage. When worship dies, several factors come into play. Let's look at them point by point. What happens is that God is not represented rightly by the leaders of the nation. God is not pleased with the offerings of the people. God is not reverenced in the holy places of Israel. God is not appeased by the offerings. And God does not listen to the prayers of His people. That's what happens when true worship dies. First, God is not represented by the leaders of the nation. Look at, to see the irony, look at verse 10. You see that because... In verse 9, he ends on the subject of Sodom and Gomorrah, and then he picks up again in verse 10 on that very same thing, showing you that kind of that link right there in the context. And so in verse 10, what happens is that he even characterizes, he paints and describes the leaders of Israel with the worst attribute you could ever give them, which is to call them rulers of Sodom and people of Gomorrah. Remember what we said last week, that in biblical parlance, Sodom and Gomorrah is about the most scathing, most scandalous, most depraved illustration of humanity. It is a people that had gone to such an extent that their sin and their depravity became intolerable to God, such that the only answer was to rain down from heaven fire and brimstone. That's how bad it got there. And here, the covenant people are being called Sodom and Gomorrah. Think about how scandalous that is, how weighty that is, the gravity of that judgment. Exactly why? Because the rulers, the very people who were tasked with leading the people, protecting the people, guiding the people, instructing the people, they were no longer teaching them the law of God. There's actually a play on words here in verse 10. Give ear to the instruction of our God. That word instruction there is the Hebrew word Torah. And so what God is saying is you must return back to the law. Come back to the Shema of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And and, and, uh, uh, they had strayed so far from this basic creedal formula that God to them was no longer recognizable. He was no longer to be honored and revered and worshipped. Instead, they went after pagan idols because they thought by doing so they would provide for themselves what they need most of all. Safety, security, fullness, satisfaction, which is found only in God through Christ. That's straight away from this. And because the rulers had so compromised, the priestly class was so compromised, the very worship of God had become a commercialized, market-driven, sort of a, 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 just a, a profit-driven marketplace. It, was, it, it basically resembled what Jesus walked into at the temple when he started overthrowing the tables at the temple because the, 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 the church, to use our language, had become so compromised 
that it was just a, a network of, you know, of, of, of exchange for money and, and profit and, and uh, underhanded ways and sordid gain and those kinds of things. And so when this happens, what happens is that God is no longer pleased. He is no longer pleased. And so God says, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me? I have had enough of burnt offerings, of rams, the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. Now turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, of course, is the song of David, the song of repentance, the song where he bears his heart before God and he confesses his sin and his blood guilt. And what's interesting about this psalm is it's sort of a mirror image of where the children of Israel, the people of Judah and Jerusalem, find themselves now. It's almost like the psalmist is embodying the whole nation when he confesses his sin. And this is what he says, verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. The very thing God is going to accuse the nation of here in a moment. The God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice. Otherwise, I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are this. A broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So as the very moment that Israel is finding that God has despised their worship, the psalmist reminds them, written long before this period of time in Isaiah, that what God accepts is a broken and contrite heart, a contrite spirit. These are the things that God cares about the most. And so because this kind of heart was missing from the leadership and the people, God says, I have had enough. See, it's one thing if the people go astray, but if the leadership goes astray, the leadership that's supposed to correct the people and steer the boat the right way, if they go astray, what hope do the people have? They don't, so they become, uh, they, they resemble Gomorrah as a result of that. It's also, uh, this passage here, it's also important to point out that the prophet is engaged in quite a bit of sarcasms, like irony, sarcasm. Because you think about it, these are the people that received the laws. These are, these are the people that had the true worship of God committed to them. He had committed to them the very Levitical uh, uh, sacrifices and institutions that he now rejects. Irony of irony, Israel has literally been thrown on its head because of its sin. You see, the, you see further here in the fact that God, not only is He not represented by the people or pleased by their offerings, He's not revered in the holy places. Isn't that remarkable? It's like the logic of this text is building upon itself. There's a logical sequence of sin. It's like sin upon sin. Because the leadership was compromised, the whole body is sick. The offerings became an offense to God. Therefore, the people profane the holy places. And so God asks them, who requires of you the trampling of my courts? Now, the courts are the courts that here are associated with the temple. So you have 2 Corinthians 29, Ezekiel chapter 9, Ezekiel chapter 10, referring to the courts of the Lord at the temple. The courts, these were the corridors in which the worshipers would have to travel through in order to get to the place of offering. It's almost like God is sitting there watching this empty, vain, futile procession of false worship. Think how odious it is in His sight that people are dragging animals to be slaughtered in vain. 
total vanity. Well, if we turn to Hebrews chapter 9, and I want you to do that for me, you remember that all of this symbolism, why did God require all of the ritual that is depicted here? Well, it was a picture, it was a type, it was a symbol of the present time. They were given these sacrifices, these, these, uh, uh, um, these offerings to be symbolic of a greater reality that is found in Christ. And that's what Hebrews tells us. In Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 10, it says the Holy Spirit is signifying by this, that's the priest, the priesthood, and the offerings, Hebrews 9, 8. He says that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is standing Man, we don't have time to get into all that. But basically what he's saying is that as long as the temple was up, it was a picture pointing us to the, to the time in which the holy, the holy place would be open to us. And uh, so therefore that symbol is, uh, is just that. It's just a symbol for the present time. He says, accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. You see, that shows us that at the very heart of these sacrifices, there's something more important. That is the conscience. That's the heart of the worshiper. It's not the external performance that God cares about. It's not the rock concert. It's the heart. It's not the chorus, the symphony. It's not that. God doesn't care if you can mix down a worship album to the point where you sound as good as the secular guy's. That doesn't matter to God at all. Not at all. What he cares about is your heart. And so I've often lamented this, even in our own Christian and evangelical worship scene, I've often lamented, why don't these guys that produce this wonderful worship music and stuff like this, why don't these guys put their doctrinal statement on their album? Reason why is because I've seen so many of these guys I like totally apostatize. Artist after artist after artist. And now it's becoming a point where like the shibboleth moment of the church is whether or not people will remain orthodox on issues like homosexuality and things like that. And I think, you know what? I don't care how good your music sounds. What's your theology? What's your heart? What's your testimony at the church? How does your pastor see you? How do you what's your piety like? What do people testify about you? That's what God really cares for. And so all this worship and all these offerings, these were external icons of true faith. And that's what Israel lost. They lost the heart. They lost the faith. And therefore, God is not pleased by the offerings and He is not appeased by the worship. Look at that. He says, these things to Him have become worthless look at verse 13 back in isaiah bring your worthless offerings no longer incense is an abomination to me see how powerful see unless you understand the cultic life of israel meaning the ritual based type life in the nation of israel when god speaks of the abominable nature of the incense what he's the reason it's so stinging the reason it's so damning is because incense was supposed to be a soothing aroma to God. It was supposed to rise up into the nostrils of God, and God was like giving them like a picture of Him going, Ah, I like this. I'm pleased with this. But when God did that, when He breathed in the worship of His people, it became abominable to Him, detestable, putrid, odious. See, this is where the lang- this language uh, is so potent. God is not messing around. 
He told them at the very beginning that his ultimate characteristic, his highest characteristic for them to understand him by was his holiness. Therefore, he is called the Holy One of Israel, altogether other and altogether pure. That's who God is. And if you're going to worship God in spirit and in truth, you have to come into alignment with those attributes that he possesses. Through sin... The most sacred things became the most defiled things. Ray Ortland, in his commentary on Isaiah, says this, Let's ask ourselves whether or not, or whether we think something is unbearable and repulsive to God, to His very soul. What would be unbearable to God? To the depths of His being. This is what he asks. We might answer hardcore crimes, exploitation of children, terrorist mayhem, that sort of thing. He says, it might not occur to us that the soul of God hates, above everything, and is burdened and wearied by is the worship that we offer Him when we are not in repentance. And therefore, because the children of Israel were not in repentance, the prophet goes on to say that God had had enough. He could not endure even their solemn assemblies and would not listen to to their prayers. Now listen to that, folks. Why is that so powerful there? When he says, I don't listen to your prayers anymore. I don't pay attention to your worship anymore. You know, I was thinking about this. Why is it so important that we consider that God doesn't listen to the prayers as something that is grave and ju- the, the judgment of God here? It's because I thought to myself, well, prayer, that's the last resource we have. When everything else is taken away, when the temple is destroyed, when a person is incapacitated, crippled, when we are downcast, discouraged, when we are uh, isolated, alone, whatever the reason is, when we're in the hospital bed by ourselves, when no one's around, when we feel hopeless and helpless, we still have prayer. And so for God to say, your last lifeline, I will not even listen to that. It's a symbol that Israel, because of its sin and its apostasy, has been cut off. What's the answer? Oh, I thought to myself, I could just go on and on and on and talk about the perfunctory nature of Israel's worship, the false nature the perverted nature of their worship and i thought but the scripture goes on see this is what i mean by the book of isaiah is so relevant for us you know why because it is designed it moves it's almost like every chapter every pericope every passage of of isaiah moves in a gospel way and so what we have thus far is the dread the doom the judgment the peril of sin but that's not the end of the story just like the gospel just like the gospel tells us. Yeah, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. There's the other part of the story. There's the other part of the news, and it's good news. Look at verse 16 with me. Wash your hands. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil from your deeds from my sight. The evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Now, In our New Testament minds, 
if we are not hermeneutically conditioned to interpret the Old Testament, a passage like this may very well appear to be saying, you need to clean yourself up and then God will save you. Which is opposite of what Paul says in the book of Romans, isn't it? That's because in this prophetic imagery and these oracles of prophecy, this is the way that God speaks of repentance. It's basically, this is not, so you've got to take your mind out of the didactic and into the prophetic. It's not violating what Romans is teaching, salvation by grace through faith. It's not a violation of that. This is the way they spoke of that. Don't forget where the doctrine of justification by faith alone comes from. It comes from the Old Testament. It comes from Genesis chapter 15, verse uh, 7. It comes from Psalm 34. It comes from all over the Old Testament. It comes from Moses telling the children of Israel to be circumcised of heart. All of it prefiguring justification. And so when God calls the children of Israel to be washed, this is the language that they understood. This was the, the language of ceremony. This was, this was the path of cleansing, of being right with God, of being renewed. This is the way you removed your sins. And so he uses this ceremonial language. Matter of fact, brothers and sisters, in Exodus chapter 30, Exodus chapter 40, God instructs Moses that part of the worship of the tabernacle and then later the temple was that himself, Aaron, and the priests... In order to approach God, they would have to go to the laver, the, br- the brass laver, and they, would have to, and they would have to wash there. They would have to clean themselves. So much so, this cleansing was so essential in the eyes of God. It's a perfect picture of regeneration, which we'll get to in a second. It was so essential that God says, Exodus chapter 30, verse 17 to 21, if they do not wash, they will die. They will die. Why? Why? Because they're bringing the filth of the world. They're bringing the filth of their sins into the courts of the Lord. And so as a testament to our need for cleansing, God told the people, you have to wash first before you take another step. Because if you take another step without being cleansed, you will die. What a perfect picture of the gospel. Turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Where do you think the language in the New Testament about regeneration comes from? It comes from this. It comes from this background of the cultic life of Israel, this ceremonial washing and cleansing, was just a picture of the work of the Spirit in our hearts, in our lives, through Jesus Christ. Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Look at that. That's the equivalent of what Isaiah will go on to say when he speaks of even your righteousness is filthy rags in the sight of God. It's not on the basis of any righteousness that you have, of any deed that you have done. But how, why, according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, this is the cleansing that God is ultimately concerned with. And therefore, brothers and sisters, when you're in a passage of Scripture in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, one of the prophets, and you're 
you're, you're, you're in this dense context of the, the rituals and the institutions of the nation of Israel, you may think, what does this have to do with me? It has everything to do with you because all of this is just a mere picture of the, of the redemptive work that is wrought by the Spirit of God and Christ in your heart. This was a call to repentance. That's what it was. You can see the illustration of this repentance even more when he tells them not only to learn to do good and seek justice, to reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. When they did that, when the nation would do this, it would illustrate a heart behind it. It would say that in the midst of all their prosperity. Now remember, right here at this critical juncture where Isaiah is speaking, not later, chapter 30, 39, 30, you know, 40. That's a lot later on in the history of Israel. Right here in these early chapters, what's going on in the nation? Right now, p- things are prosperous. The economy is good. The armies are strong. The borders are secure. Uh, everybody's living it up high on the hog. Everybody's got a house and a car and, you know, a big screen TV. Everybody's just at ease in their padded homes. But what did they do with that prosperity? What did they do with all that luxury? Did they, take, did they take care of the people that need it the most? No. They became ruthless themselves, greedy. They became cold-hearted, indifferent to the needs of the nation, illustrated here by the orphan and the widow. Everywhere in Scripture where you see a reference to the orphan and the widow, it's basically code for those who are needy. Those who cannot do for themselves. The nation was tasked with taking care of the little ones in the covenant who could not do for themselves as an expression of their heart of compassion. But they didn't have a heart of compassion anymore. They had a heart of greed born out of the soil of, of, of total sin and indifference. I should have brought that up here with me. Uh, can one of you, Pastor Lynn, can you bring that gigantic water up here for me? Things like a laver. There we go. It's a good illustration for my sermon. <laughs> One second here. I never bring water to the pulpit. I think I need to start to. I think Isaiah is going to make me. <laughs> the other aspect of this repentance is found in verse 18. Come now, let us reason together. This is sort of continuing on the logic of the covenant lawsuit that was introduced in verse 2. When God, remember there, go back there for a second. Listen, O heavens, hear, O O, O earth, the Lord speaks. Now, commentators and scholars and theologians have pointed out that language is the language of a covenant lawsuit. Uh, Psalm uh, 50 says that God calls heaven and earth as witnesses against the people, and that's what he's doing right here. And so in keeping with this covenant lawsuit, the, the, the word here to reason together is literally, let's go into deliberations with one another. Come into my courtroom, basically, he's saying. Let's talk it out. Let's see if you have a case or not. (laughs) Let's see if you can stand up against the judge. (laughs) And of course, they cannot. And you know what? The beauty of this is that it illustrates for us the gospel mercy of God. He could have easily said, come now and let us reason together so that I can show you why and how I'm going to judge you, and then just leave it at that. But he doesn't do that. The gospel is in the details. The gospel is in the details. 
Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. In other words, what is being set forth here is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 5, that though you are helpless, though you are at enmity with God, though you are an enemy of God, God saves His enemies. God is in the business of saving those who are in opposition to Him, who are hostile to Him through wicked deeds. Like I often say while I'm preaching at UNT, God does not save His friends on Facebook, people that follow Him on Twitter and watch His YouTube videos. God saves His enemies, people that don't like Him, that are opposed to Him. Oh, how gracious of God who has the power to unleash infinite wrath to call us into the council of his courtroom and to say I want to be gracious to you and if we don't buckle beneath the weight of that grace look at what he says here look at what he says here let's let's take the last point first he says if you refuse and rebel you will be devoured by the sword. In other words, you will be a victim of your own devices if you do not repent. This is like God basically saying to them, look, uh, you can either repent to your joy or you can rebel unto your destruction. Unto your destruction. It's almost like what He did in Deuteronomy. I think it's Deuteronomy chapter 30 where He says, I set before you life and death. Choose life. Same thing he's doing here. Look at verse 19. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. See, that doesn't land on us the way it ought to. Why? Because you're not a Jew in the 7th century B.C., 8th century B.C., 7th century B.C. You're not in that timeline. And why? Because the land is everything. The land is everything. To the Jewish people. Why do you think the judgment, when it came, why do you think it came in association to the land or the lack thereof? Because to lose the land was to lose the soul of the nation. It was to lose the very identity of the people of God. And the land is so profound here because what it shows us is that the gospel sets before us the prospect of reward. So what is the, in total keeping with the book of Hebrews, Isaiah speaks in the same way that there is a reward in front of us. Uh, uh, there, there's a finish line. Uh, there's a, a, a race, a course. We need to obtain our inheritance. It's all there in front of us. And this land reminds us, brothers and sisters, that this cannot be attained on, on our own. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Hosea. Hosea chapter 1, quickly, just, just so I can show I alluded to this earlier, but I just want to show you Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Hosea chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Name her Loruamah, which means she has not obtained mercy or compassion. For I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel, that I would ever forgive them. Wow. And then here's the gospel. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah 
and deliver them, wow, this is interesting, by the Lord their God. Wow. That's the only way they're going to be delivered. By the Lord their God. And will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. What's he saying here? It will be an act of sheer sovereign grace on the spiritual plane, not on the physical plane. It will have nothing to do with military might or power or clanging of swords and shields and, and, and horses. None of that. It will be a spiritual work. It will be a work in the heart. How does this all happen but through the gospel and through the new covenant that we celebrated? This is what the gospel does. What does the word gospel mean? Good news. The good news is good because of what it promises. But don't mistake the good news to be devoid of bad news in a sense. Because The gospel is simultaneously telling us the good news of Jesus Christ and the bad news for rejecting Jesus Christ. If you rebel, what does Isaiah say? Going back to Isaiah. If you rebel, he says, you will be devoured by the sword. That's the equivalent of Jesus in Luke 13. Unless you repent, you will perish. But such is the good news That if by faith we consent to subdue ourselves and bring our frame under the mighty hand of God, He will exalt us in due time. And we will eat the best of the land. And we know that the land is ultimately code for two things. Our positional and practical uh, uh, union with Christ... uh, I I could almost say, He is the land. Why? Why do I say that? Because the land was the place of Sabbath rest. It was the place where you were safe from your enemies. It was the place of security, abundance, fullness. The land flowing with milk and honey. And now Jesus sets Himself forth as what? I come to Me. I will give you rest. He will subdue all of our enemies. He will give us rest for our souls. In other words, in Him, what we find is spiritual safety, spiritual security, sweet refreshment. As we commune with Him, He is the fountain of life. He is our refuge in the storm. He is our shade in the desert. He is the substance of our joy, unspeakable, full of glory. Brothers and sisters, in Him is life. In Him is life. In Him was life. I just went like way ahead of my notes. Now I'm back and I'm like, where did I go? <sighs> what more is there to say, brothers and sisters, than to say that what was set forth typologically for the nation of Israel in the land through covenant faithfulness has all been fulfilled in Christ. And so what I don't want us to ever do is to commit the error that Israel was committing. Say, well, as long as I go through the motions, as long as I just keep coming to church, lift my hands, sing the songs... Can't do it as good as Jonathan, but sing the songs. As long as I keep going through the motions, take the cracker, take the little cup, up, down, sit, read, then I'm okay. No, you're not. You're only okay if your heart's okay. You're only okay if your hands are clean. You're only okay if you're walking in the light. You're only okay if you, like Ray Ortland said, if we walk in repentance. 
You're only okay if in your heart you're right with God, then it doesn't matter what happens with man. If you're right with God, (laughs) who cares? Who cares about anything? See, it's like this. As long as you're right with God, it doesn't matter what people think of you. It doesn't matter, you know, what your gifts are and what they're not. It doesn't matter, you know, what kind of person you are, whether you're shy or outgoing. None of that matters, whether you have issues in the, sh- in the church or where you have problems in ministry. None of that matters if you're right with God. All the other stuff can be right. You can have community. You can have ministry. You can be in charge. You can have gifts. You can have callings. You can have talent. But if you're not right with God, none of that matters. Because the principle is, is that though we are in a different covenant administration in the new covenant, the Holy One of Israel has never changed who He is. He still hates sin as always. He still rejects false worship, perfunctory worship. He still hates rote religion, dead religion. And He still desires for us to worship Him with a heart of sincerity That's the praises with which he is pleased. I think last of all, what I want to say is, I want to turn you and your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13, because I want to end it on a Christocentric note. I want to end it not with you looking to yourself. I want to end it with you understanding that your righteousness comes from a foreign, alien, foreign and alien righteousness a righteousness, as the theologians would say, extranos, outside of ourselves and beyond ourselves, rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. After contemplating the glorious truths of the new covenant, the author of Hebrews says in thirteen fifteen, through Him, i.e., through Christ, let us continually offer up sacrifice of praise to God. See, the cultic language has not disappeared, is not vanished away. It's not that it's no longer relevant. Oh, it is, but now the sacrifices have to do with the praise of lips. That is the fruit of lips that gives thanks to to His name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. That we could say, God is still pleased with that. But don't miss the all-important prepositional phrase, through Him. If it's through your own effort, through your own energy, through your own strength, power, talents, ability, gifts, it's not rooted in the right thing. It must be through Him, through who you are in Jesus Christ, through your union with Him by faith. And and, and once you're in union with Christ by faith, man, you are safe. You are secure. And most acceptable, and most important, we're acceptable to God, which is what should be the chief aim of our entire life from first breath to final breath. Are we pleasing to God? Are we acceptable to God? This should consume our every thought, our every day. And if you've come to to God through the gospel, then you realize you're acceptable because of Jesus Christ and because of nothing that you've done. Praise God. Let's, uh, Let's pray. Father, Every week it's possible. Every week it's likely that there are those among us here who are not 
praising you through him because they are not in him. And so I pray, first and foremost, as the priority of priorities, would you save the lost? Would you do a work of salvation? Save the kids in our church. The kids are in such a danger of growing up in pharisaical religion. Clouded and shrouded by all of the sin and misery of the world. And thinking that, oh, we're just doing the Christian thing. Coming to church and doing what's quote unquote right. When they don't see that what they need above everything is not more ritual, not more, not more uh, uh, um, tradition, not more custom. What they need is Christ. What they need is Jesus. What they need is His righteousness credited to their account. And so, Lord, lead us to the cross. Help us to understand that it's only in the cross that we'll find the merit that we need to stand before You. And also, Lord, I know that in this church and in every heart, every heart here, there is always the lurking, encroaching possibility of false fire, false worship, hearts that are not in tune and right. And so, God, we pray and we say, forgive us, O God. Cleanse us, O God. Renew us again. As John in Revelation said, help us to do the first fruits. What Jesus said to the churches, help us to repent, to do the first fruits over again. If we learn anything from Israel, is that you are a very, very, very good God, but you are also a very just God. And if we rebel, it will be to our own destruction, even practically. But if we repent and trust, it will be for our everlasting joy. Thank you for the gospel today. Pray your people would walk in the fullness of that. In Jesus' name, amen.